Hey guys, it's Jenny. This week on the She Loves podcast, Rachel and I had an amazing chat with author, organizer, entrepreneur, and all-round superstar, Nadia Okamoto. We talk all things periods, such as taboos around menstrual cycles, the dreaded tampon tax, and combating period poverty. You may already know Nadia as the founder of the Period Movement, which is a global, youth-powered non-profit that's fighting to end period poverty and the stigma around periods. I'm really excited for you to hear this one. Hope you like it. So, welcome Nadia. <laughs> Thank you Thank for joining you. us today. So, you founded Period, the non-profit organisation, when you were 16 which is really cool, by the way. Did you find that your age made it difficult for you to be taken seriously or difficult, more difficult to be heard than someone that's older, perhaps? I mean, for sure. I think that when you start something at 16, the biggest hurdle is when how do you gain the confidence? Not necessarily, for me, the obstacle was like talking to adults, but it was talking to peers, right? It was like standing up in front of my whole high school and saying, hey, I want to collect tampons and pads and talk about menstruation. Come join me, right? So I think that there, that was the biggest hurdle for me on a personal level was that kind of internal confidence. But even further than that was the fact that I started in 2014. And now I feel like youth activism and entrepreneurship is sort of this accepted, almost expected and like highly celebrated thing was like young founders and everything. When I started this organization, there wasn't like a Malala who had just won the Nobel Prize and I can look up to. There wasn't a, you know, the March for Our Lives group that had proven like how young people can organize in mass. There wasn't a Greta Thunberg yet. So for me, I think that I didn't, I felt a lot more alone than I do now in in starting something as a young person. Which kind of makes it even cooler that you did it. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like a trailblazer, I suppose. Oh gosh. So what was your main driver for starting period? Like how, how did you come about it? I mean, I think I was just really shocked and angered by learning about period poverty. Like it was something that I had never thought about growing up. Um, and even when my family was experiencing like financial or housing instability, like I never had to worry about access to period products. So when I learned about period products from you know, homeless women and hearing their stories of kind of what their challenges were in their living situation and kind of what their experiences of getting to the living situation they were in, I was honestly just shocked. Like it was a huge wake up call of like, holy shit, I'm a young activist. I grew up in an all girl family and I've never thought about the concept of period poverty. I've, you know, my mom was always talking about, you know, making sure we don't take for granted the access to food, access to education, but access to period products was never something that I had talked about. And I think that it was just kind of this really powerful catalyst that woke me up to, this is awful and frustrating. I can't believe this is still an issue. I can't believe we're not talking about it. I cannot believe that I'm trying to find volunteer opportunities to take action in my community and I cannot find anything. And I just kept getting more and more obsessed, doing more research and realizing and finding out that there was a tampon tax, right? And 40 states in the US at the time had a sales tax on period products, considering them luxury items and products like Rogaine and Viagra were considered essential goods. So I think that it was just this driver of 
every time I had one more conversation and honestly, I still have this today. I'll have one more conversation. I'll learn one more new thing. Like I just learned two days ago that when you are on birth control and you have a period or you're bleeding, it's not called a period. It's like not even like the same sort of thing. Like, and like I learn new things every day that just make me like really pause and, and just have this like feeling of shock anger and like kind of re-energize to like take action because I just think it's like I it's, the, it's just this constant state of like it's about fucking time we mobilize can I ask what is it called then when you have a period when you're on birth control so I actually just got an email about this because I've been I I, I learned about this because I posted on social media about birth control and I started getting you know there's so hormonal birth control is kind of an overall rather controversial thing because there's this sort of idea that you know just kind of playing with your hormones is not always good for you and so I've been just really curious about learning more about this because I've gotten so many messages about it so um, this woman named Jenna Long Goria, who, uh, you know, is referred to as the period guru. I sent her some questions and she sent me a list of how a period is different from when you're on birth control and you are still bleeding. That's called a breakthrough bleed versus a withdrawal. So I'm just, this is a new thing that I'm obsessing about, but I think all this to say that it's been six years that I've been talking about the same thing of periods and every day I like still feel more energized to like do this work. Interesting. <laughs> I'm very curious about that now. I always thought it was the same thing, but learn no. every day. So you're literally being on the pill, you're literally not having a period whatsoever. It's just like emphasizes how bad <laughs> contraception yeah. I mean, and I think that the thing is, is I'm not the expert to ask about this. And I think that's what humbles me every day is like so much of the work that I'm doing, I think since the beginning, my mentality has always been like, I don't know what I'm doing. This is like this. I, I have never done this before. Like this is the first nonprofit I was ever involved in. And I'm not with the nonprofit anymore. I am working on starting a new thing. And like, I've never done this before. And I think my mentality has been like, I don't know what I'm doing, but no one does. So I'm just going to go out there and figure it out. I'm going to ask questions. And even about these different elements of health. I'm like, I'm not a doctor. I'm not an expert when it comes to the actual biology of what's happening in your body. So let me go learn from others, right? So this whole thing about, you know, I've been on birth control for five years and I've always been saying, oh, I'm on my period, I'm on my period. And now I'm like, what? You mean I'm not on my period? <laughs> <laughs> so the new thing that you're working on, can you talk about that? Or is that a secret at the moment? I can't really talk about okay. it right now. We're still in stealth mode, but I'll say that it is something that I'm really excited about and, and kind of is growing on my passion for breaking stigmas and saying like, we got to talk about this stuff that affects so many people and it's not in the nonprofit space. And so uh, I think, you know, my last few years of working in the nonprofit space actually really pushed me to fall in love with like the power of social enterprise and brands. And especially when you look at Gen Z as like, these people who are demanding a change in how business is structured and the philosophy behind the responsibility of businesses for the world and for culture. And I think also looking at Gen Z as, you know, whether they know it or not, and, you know, I'm an older member of Gen Z, are also like the most loyal brand consumers and the biggest brand consumers with social media and everything. And so that's where I think that 
I've sort of a few years ago became disillusioned with the nonprofit industrial complex, of course, in a lot of ways, which perpetuates a lot of inequity, but also I think made it really hard for me as like a passionate young person to say, wow, the nonprofit has grown and now I'm spending 100% of my time fundraising to do the actual work. And I'm fundraising from very wealthy people who have never heard about period poverty before. I'm fundraising from these corporations who I don't really think care about the actual impact and the deepness of how it's made. And I think I kind of got to a place of what does it look like to use business to like actually stand for impact and stand for that change and stand for something not as a marketing tool but as a like this is our dna and why we show up and how we show up so i mean again i'm still learning and and i'm excited to kind of keep talking about it not gonna launch for a long time but um i think that this has just been a big year of like okay i'm gonna step into this kind of new passion of mine that has been sort of brewing the last few years so to you, what does it mean to be period positive and how can we all be a bit more period positive? This is a question I get a lot and I feel like people always expect me to say like, oh, the change is we all need to love our periods and it's magical and like, let's go water all of our plants with our period blood, like, which I totally do not judge. That's a very real thing. I think it's very good for plants if you have like home gardens. But what I'm saying is like that, like, I don't love my period or I don't even know if I can call it a period anymore. But like, I think I look at it in the sense of period care is at a place where either it's not accessible or it's not good enough, right? Like no one you talk to will ever say, oh yeah, I love my period. It's so perfect. I have no leaks. I have no issues. Everything about my period care is taken care of. So I'm, my mentality is actually like, I'm not saying be period positive and saying you love your period and it's easy because it's not. I've been having my period for three weeks. I have no idea why. And I'm like bleeding in to like multiple pairs of underwear a day. And I think getting your period is really challenging. And when you add in period pain and all of these things and the lack of education, like it becomes even more challenging. So for me, being period positive is not saying let's paint this all to be like unicorn and rainbows. It's saying let's talk about periods because it's something that makes human life possible. It's something that affects more than half of our global population at some point in their lives. And it's something that even as a powerful biological function, we have not as a society given it the sort of space um, or you know investment to be really innovated upon and it's still something like period care that's seen as a luxury and that's not right and it's causing so many inequities in our world and so all that to say like the ask for me is not saying completely change to love your period and be happy about periods and you know lean into it it's saying like we need to be period just open about talking about period so it's not going out and saying i love my period it's going out and saying the word period and not giggling and feeling uncomfortable about it it's you know people who don't have periods feeling open about talking about periods and not perpetuating shame around it it's creating inclusive spaces for even people who don't identify as female or women to also express their own menstruating experiences so to me, period positivity is not sort of the how you would look at positivity, I think, in the usual sense. It's just like an openness to talk about it and like talk about how hard menstruating can be. That's the exact reason why I hate 
period adverts like tampon adverts yeah. <laughs> it's like a woman playing tennis in an all-white outfit and she's just like no no stress whatsoever I'm wearing all white and that's great <laughs> I'm having a great time I love my period yeah no and actually that so that was my favorite chapter of my book to write was about the history of the commodification of period products because I mean throughout history and actually when I was writing my book I hold myself up in the Schlesinger library at Harvard which is like one of the oldest and biggest feminist archives um and I sat there and I would go through like every old tampax and like all the old advertisements from throughout history and you can literally track the dance trends through the 20th century because in most advertisements and educational pamphlets there would be a do and do not list like when you're on your period do take rest do not take a bath go horseback riding do the jitterbug do the disco do the you know you can track the dance trend because whatever dance they're telling you not to do is there but also there's this language of that perpetuates the shame right buy our product to take care of your period to hide your period to forget you're on your period right and then it's like even now buy scented products so that we don't think about the period and in old and i have to find it i write about it in my book but there's this old advertising from like the 1960s or something that talks about how when you're a woman, you should never complain about being sick on your period to your husband because then your husband will think that you don't want to be a woman. And what man wants to be with a woman who doesn't want to be a woman, right? So not only is like the, the way that these have been advertised shaming from a period perspective, but also like in completely heteronormative, completely sexist, completely transphobic, completely like, it's so fascinating because I think that because periods are so wrapped up in our sex, our bodies, and our gender, it becomes this sort of like encapsulation of exposing where society is too. That's mad. Why do you feel <laughs> then there's still such a taboo around kind of the menstrual cycle? I mean, I think it's because we're still seeing the shame perpetuated today, right? Like, I think that it's been really, really continuing to be angering for me to see advertisements that, you know, only have like very femme cis women in their advertisements and where all the messaging is period suck, buy our products to forget you have your period, right? And I'm like, yeah, we shouldn't be walking around being like, I'm free bleeding, I'm free bleeding, I'm free bleeding. But it should be like, I'm not forgetting I'm on my period. I'm just taking care of my period and myself, right? And I think that because we still see that happen today and also just see shame perpetuated, like the fact that we still have a tampon tax, the fact that still today around the world, we're still trying to get you know, female inmates in prisons to have access to adequate amounts of period products and food stamps in the US don't cover period products. Like it's the fact that still today our society, the fucking free market, the systems and legislation in place is telling us still that menstrual hygiene is a privilege and a luxury that, you know, this is something that not should not be talked about publicly and should be something that we try to erase at all costs from public conversation. Massively. And I think as well, not even just in the public space, but in our educational systems as well. I don't even remember having any period education at school at all. Yeah. And I think that causes the kind of shame um, surrounding the topic as well. Because if we're not taught about it to an extent... We're, we don't know how to combat it. I always remember getting my first period in science class and being like, 
uh, what's this? <laughs> I mean, I think I always like to talk about how the fact that, yeah, periods are never really talked about in school. There's no requirement for sex ed in general or talking about puberty. But also, when they are taught, they're taught often by separating the boys and the girls, right? Which is, I think, one of the key initial ways that you create that stigma. And not only is that problematic from like a gender binary thing, but also from the fact that you're then teaching the boys that this is something that they should not be included upon, that they should, they are not to be in the room when periods are talked about. But then you're also teaching all of the girls that this is something you only talk about in behind closed doors and in whispered hushed tones with each other. And you don't go into depth about it. You talk about at most, okay, here's a period when you don't get it, you're pregnant. So be careful. And here's a tampon and here's a pad. Here's how you use it. And like done. There's no conversation about period pain and endometriosis. Like there isn't comprehensive education. And so I think that there's a number of things here that have to happen to like get to a better place, which is like, let's talk about growing bodies and like fucking real science in classrooms and let's do it together and inclusively and break that stigma from a very early age. I feel like the tampon tax is something that's going under the radar still in the UK anyway. I don't think it's that common knowledge that it's a thing. So So I think the UK just successfully took down their tampon tax in the last year. But Mm -hmm. um, I mean, so in the US, at least it's a sales tax on period products, considering them luxury items, right? Like non-essential goods in terms of the real terms. And the reason why I think it's so angering is that is not just simply that they're considered non-essential, even though they are, but it's the fact that when you look at what are considered medical necessities and essentials, what falls into that category are like penile pumps, Rogaine, Viagra, right? And so what's upsetting about it is that when we compare what it what is considered as necessities and like supported in terms of buying, it's like old man hair growth and erections and like bigger <laughs> penises. And I don't mean to be like crass about it. I don't mean to be like, oh, like this uh, screw old man hair growth and erections. I'm saying that is what's considered more of a necessity than over half of our population feeling clean, confident, and capable regardless of whether or not they're menstruating, right? And so it's that, it's that like looking at the disparities there. And the reason I think that like the tamp- solving the tampon tax and getting rid of it is not going to fix period poverty, right? Like, because the tampon tax affects people who already have access to be able to buy the product, right? But the reason I'm always like, the tampon tax is a big first step is because it's kind of a, the Trojan horse to doing this big stamp of societal change of like, we are deeming these products as necessities. And right now that obstacle of a belief is what's standing in the way of us getting products into schools, into shelters, into prisons as necessities. And when we try to do that work at the sort of more specific level of period poverty, what comes back to us as pushback is, well, what's the precedent, right? Like what is the legal obligation of the government to support these being provided as necessities, right? And the tampon tax is like a clear example of how it's not seen as necessities. So I think if we fight and we get rid of the tampon tax, it will have this trickle down effect on other legislation to say like, look, these are deemed necessities. So like, where the fuck are they? Like, why are there free condoms everywhere? And they're more accessible than, you know, having access to period products. 
I did see um, something today, I've just picked up my phone about it, that the majority of schools have failed up to sign, this is in the UK, failed to sign up for government's free sanitary products despite period poverty soaring amid coronavirus crisis. I guess for you, how have you seen that the pandemic has affected and impacted period poverty, not just in the UK, but on a global scale? Yeah, I think that, well... I mean, and this is this is something I, I want to say, which is a common question I always get is like, who does period poverty affect, right? Like, who who actually experiences this? And my thing is like, well, it's it, think about it as this is a basic necessity, and people are struggling to afford access to it, right? So when you ask who it affects, it's anyone who's struggling to afford basic necessities, who's struggling to afford food, who's struggling to afford shelter, and is an added $10 a month or something or whatever added costs there are going to be a challenge, right? And so when you think about the pandemic, um, you know, and we especially see this in the US and how the current administration has handled it, like all the new unemployment, all the rising rates of economic inequality, like, and also the fact that when the world sort of was shut down, you know, we weren't able, and this is when I was still involved in the organization, like not able to gather in the office, not able to have people in warehouses and have people going physically to drop off products. People weren't going out of their houses. Oh, and most shelters closed down, right? So suddenly there, even for the most marginalized people, there isn't that like even open door to get products in the first place. And like the supply chain of getting products in charitable contributions and overall, I think becomes a harder challenge. And at the same time, I think it's like, okay, there's more poverty being escalated. There's more like economic inequality. And, you know, on top of that, because period products are necessities, like for a while they were completely sold out on Amazon. They were completely sold out. It was something that people were hoarding from supermarkets. Like it, it became this thing that like was was even more of an obstacle to reach. I didn't realize that they were completely sold out on Amazon. That is crazy. I know. Well, I think that they're they're obviously not anymore, but like I remember tracking that and just being like, okay, why are we isn't this showing that it's a necessity? Like so although the tax has been removed, has has it been removed in specific states in the US or is it Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it definitely has. And there's been like a growing movement too of like different activists and mentors who have been really mobilizing around it. But I would say that in the US, it has been removed from a number. And, the, and then before that, there in the states where it didn't exist, it was because there was no sales tax, right? Like I grew up in Oregon where there's no sales tax, right? And there are still 30 states today that have the tampon tax in the US. Wow. One of the, I guess, downside is a lot of the products that are being used are unsustainable. And I guess this brings up a completely different issue in terms of sustainability of the products. Do you imagine that it is a long time coming before the majority of the world moves towards more eco-friendly period products? I mean, I think that yes, because one, like not a lot of people know still about like what a menstrual cup is and what the sustainable options are. But at the same time, I think that a lot of people who don't have access to a clean bathroom or to a place where they can hygienically store their menstrual cup, like it's actually not the best option, right? And for especially people who might come from cultures or have religious beliefs where inserting something like that inside of you is is not as much of a comfortable um, move. I think that there is sort of this cultural change of like, okay, how do we 
one, get people access to like clean underwear when they can't afford it, you know, access to bathrooms when they can't afford it, access to, you know, a place to be or invent something that can keep it clean and wash it on the go. Like there's a lot of move just to like first get people to know about it, but then also how do you help marginalized communities where this maybe isn't the best option yet? We are already seeing sustainable options like menstrual cups and sort of period underwear. I just think that right now, like most sustainable options, like sustainable clothing is more expensive, right? Like, yes, it's a better investment, but like, you know, diva cups can go up to like $30, $30, $40. And I think, you know, thinks is like expensive per underwear and I'm wearing one now, but like, you know, I think that even still today, we are across the board in all industries trying to make it so that the sustainable option is not also the more expensive option. Can't even say the timeline, mostly because it's like, well, how do we address climate change? Like, when is that going to be a thing? When are people going to acknowledge that sustainability is important? You know, like, I think that it's across the board. There's a lot of culture shift that needs to happen. I remember seeing some sort of article about the menstrual cups. There's some sort of, like, medical downside about them. So I've been terrified of them ever since. <laughs> that's, a, that's another thing, which is like, even in the period care industry, there is like fear built around every product. I was on a call yesterday with a group of, you know, young women who are talking about their period experiences and a few shared how they were like, they have fainted from like the amount of period pain. And this eighth grader who was so sweet was like, oh my gosh, am I going to faint? Like, should I be scared that I'm going to faint? Right. And I think I say that to show there's an example of because of the lack of conversation, like we have instilled fear over like periods, right? Like there's a part of me that's scared that I've been having my breakthrough bleed for three weeks and I have no idea what's going on. And if I ask a doctor, all they can tell me is, well, like maybe check inside. Does it hurt? Oh, probably just wait it out, you know? And I think that it's a combination of that. And then also when you look at what's happened in the last century, like the toxic shock syndrome fear around tampons even last year like the new tampon coming out and some of the cotton is left inside of you and it causes these things like there is fear wrapped up in all of these products that i think you know in some ways is valid toxic shock, shock syndrome is very real but in some ways like does the menstrual cup hurt you i don't know right like i think that there's a lot of sort of fear and also perpetuating of the company companies like lola and cora they sort of launched by saying our ingredients are not harmful for your body right and even if there's no scientific evidence for that it's basically creating fear that you know buy our product because every other product is bad for you and so this is where it becomes this difficult play of like one, what is scientific evidence and what is like a tool being used by companies to sell products? And I mean, I think that this can, we can go into a whole conversation about like capitalism and like how capitalism is a sort of a lot of problems, right? Because like, I mean, inherently these are co companies and corporations, like this in industry is on track to be a $52 billion industry. This is not some small industry that companies are like playing in. This is a huge fucking industry and companies have sold products and they have an upper hand by saying, we're not convincing people to like buy this because they want it. Like it's a new water bottle that they could, that they could use. They're saying, you need this product because yes, period products are necessities. But then how do you convince people that you need their tampon or pad over another tampon or other pad? It's by creating fear that saying that one is going to harm you. That one's going to kill you. Even with TSS and stuff, that product is bad for your body. And all they have to do is create that fear. 
I, I completely agree that like putting ingredients that are bad for your body and you are very harmful, but also what's harmful even psychologically is to instill that fear in consumers with no scientific evidence and as a PR play to sell product. Right. And I think that that's where it's like, even on from a capitalism standpoint, like what is the danger of this sort of instilling fear to sell product, but it expands into like, what, you know, one of my um, most incredible friends, Sophia Lee, like she's, she talks a lot about woke washing and green washing of companies, right? This idea that now because Gen Z cares about the world and cares about ethics, like companies say, oh, like everything is green and has leaves on it and it's sustainable and it looks like cardboard, but it's really not. This whole like selling sustainability, even though it's not actually sustainable to sell products, right? Or woke washing of saying, we're going to have Black Lives Matter everywhere, but like our team is all white still and like rather problematic, right? And I think this is something that I've even tried to like catch myself on, which is like, where in my activism is it like something that I'm genuinely passionate about? And where am I sharing it? Because everyone else is sharing it. That that we really need to be self-aware of. And it's something that I'm still learning and trying to teach myself today. What other um, forms of activism then are you involved with? I mean, so here's the thing, which is like, I don't identify as like, oh, hi, I'm Natalie, an activist, right? Like for me, I've always sort of identified as like, I'm like a student, I'm a sister, I'm like a best, like, you know, I am a best friend, but like, I'm also, to me, I define activism as simply like, just advocating for against the status quo. So in that sense, isn't everyone a little bit of an activist? Like anyone who's like, I want to disrupt the status quo or I want to change something, which is a lot of people on social media, like everyone's now an activist in some way, right? I think where it comes to be different is around like being an organizer, right? Like being someone who is spending their time building and collecting all of these activists and creating platforms for them to like bring their activism into real action. And so I think for me, like when I think about what other activism am I involved in, I'm like, oh, well, I'm really passionate about these things. I like to talk about these. I like to talk about, the, you know, the problems of capitalism, but I also like to talk about being a conscious capitalist and like, what does that look like? And what are ways to reimagine capitalism? Because I do believe that there is, and potentially naively, an ideal form of business that can help serve the world on consumer needs, right? So, I mean, in terms of like, where do I identify as an activist? I'm like, I don't really, but there are a lot of things that I'm really passionate about. Like right now, I think I'm very much still passionate about gender equality, ending violence against women, but also something that I've been really, really obsessed with talking about is like Asian American identity and like the history of Asian America, which I've never, I was never educated on when I was younger, but also specifically like the model minority myth, because I grew up with the model minority myth of, you know, Asians being seen as like too smart, educated, like, you know, wealthy and all of these things. And I've always sort of like almost owned it because I was like, oh, well, like, you know, it feels like they're discriminating against me, but they're telling me that I'm a try hard, right? And like, they're making fun of me for getting into Harvard. And I've never sort of fought back against that because I was never educated on like, what is the model minority myth and why is it harmful? And I think that it was really this year and the kind of growing conversation around racial justice that I sort of came to an understanding of, wow, the model minority myth is created by white media in the 20th century and is rooted in anti-blackness because basically what it's doing is by creating a model minority, there's inherently then like a bad minority or like a not model minority, right? And realizing that 
in my sort of almost accepting that model minority myth and even talking about it without that self-awareness, I think that that's been something I've been really like excited about deconstructing within myself too. So what is the model minority myth? Is it racism in a positive way? Yeah, so I mean, not as in... like, I mean, are you some Asian in you? Mm, we think, not directly, but I, I'm actually from South America, but I know I look Asian, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure I have some very, very distant relatives that I don't yeah. know about that are from China. <laughs> oh, nice. But yeah, I feel like that's not a <laughs> correct. Do you have some Asian in you? <laughs> I feel like I'm that would never be okay if like a white person asked you that. But I mean, I think that the model minority myth is, you know, I grew up with with you know comments of being like ching chong like you like oh i'm so I'm good at math <laughs> all these things of like oh do you like math like it was always about fucking math and like screw it. like i love andrew yang in a lot of ways but like his whole like oh i'm a math nerd i'm like that's growing off the fucking stereotype that like asians are good at math asian parents are really strict about rules and they're really strict about like the whole tiger mom thing right you know asians get into harvard and asia like why are so many asians at harvard why are like like caring about education being doctors and lawyers and while there's you know truth to it like yeah asian americans is a minority well, first of all, the term Asian Americans is a bit problematic because it erases the diversity of like 40 different ethnicities being in that, right? Pacific Islanders and all of the sort of different, like the fastest growing minority population in the US is Asian Americans, but it's also where the poverty rates are growing. But because yes, like upper end, like wealthier Asian Americans are able to have that social mobility more than, you know, marginalized communities and other races. Like there's this idea that like, Asian Americans are fine. Like they're basically white, right? Like they don't have that racism against them because they're smart and they're successful and they care about education. And so that's kind of the model minority myth, I, I mean. And I'm still learning about it. Something for me to look up after our call. <laughs> what has been your biggest hurdle and your biggest accomplishment through this whole journey? My biggest hurdle, I think, was like this year. Like this year, I did sort of experience and see and hear like other activists in the space who came forward on social media and shared that they had sort of felt silenced by my work, myself, my actions, or the fact that my nonprofit sort of became this, you know, like monopoly almost in this space. And I think that was one of the biggest hurdles for me this summer was like taking a pause for the first time in six years and looking back at my work and saying like, where could I have been a lot more inclusive? What are the patterns within myself of like, I am competitive and I've been made fun of for being competitive, right? And like, where are the places and behaviors and beliefs in myself that I really need to become aware of and hold myself accountable for? And so I think that that was a big challenge this year um mental health and everything like i mean also like the challenge of starting something on top of school and running multiple things and jobs like the mental health thing is something i've really struggled with um and i think that what my biggest accomplishment is kind of like i'm just very proud and pr feel privileged that my passion is my profession right like i think that it is such a privilege to say like oh, what would I be doing as my side hustle? Like, what is the thing that I do because I'm passionate about it and excites me? It's like what I'm doing for work, right? And I think that that is a huge privilege. And it was not the case when I was before. Like, I worked many jobs. And I think that that's something I'm really proud of. Amazing, Nadia. So to finish off, can you provide us with one recommendation for a book 
and one for a podcast? Yeah, so um, let's see. A book that I have really, really loved. Oh, well, first of all, my favorite fiction book is A Hundred Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. So, so, so good. And then another book I'm reading right now that I love is The Body Keeps Score. And it's about like how your body remembers and is affected by trauma. And like, I have complex PTSD too. And so it's been super interesting. And I think it's honestly something everyone should read just because, you know, growing up in, you know, patriarchal capitalist society, like everyone has some amount of trauma. And so I, I think it's super interesting and talks a lot about like how anxiety and depression is held in your body. And then for a podcast recommendation, wow, I haven't listened to a lot of podcasts in a long time. I would say Code Switch is really, really good though. Amazing, amazing. I will check them all out. So we will finish up there. Nadia, thank you so much. Um, Can you just let our listeners know where they can find you? Yeah, I'm just at Nadia Okamoto on social media. So just my full name. You have to mention the book as well. Oh yeah, and my book, Period power is wherever books are sold, usually. Um, internationally, probably Amazon is the best bet. I hate to say Amazon, but yeah, that's where it is. Um, and yeah, I'm super excited for this. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to the She Loves Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you're enjoying these conversations with these inspiring women, be sure to share them with your friends, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you are listening. If you've not already, check out our Instagram at Podcast and our website SheLovesPodcast.com. We're also very keen to hear your stories. So if you're interested in writing for us or just want to have a chat, email us at WeAreSheLoves at gmail.com.